Well, we do begin a new series today. I'm good, not really. We're gonna jump into that in just a second in 2 Kings chapter five. So if you brought a Bible and you wanna turn to 2 Kings chapter five, we're gonna open that up in just a minute. I wanna say welcome to all of our uh, guests. I wanna say hey to the folks in the sanctuary. Uh, we're a church that meets in two venues, and so I wanna say hey to everyone over there, and so grateful for all the people that have come today. If you're a guest, we hope that you'll make yourself at home today. And, and come back this week, you know, stop by Provision Cafe, come and hang out with us. Uh, we want this to be a place of belonging for you and your family and would love, would love to get to know you. Last Sunday, I mentioned that it takes well over 900 people to just pull off a normal Sunday at Johnson Ferry. And then we have servant leaders who serve in all kinds of ways throughout the week and with partners and around the world and all that stuff. So you guys are amazing servant volunteers. And as today is the beginning of a new ministry year, I would love to pray for those of you who are these incredible servant leaders of ours, whether you're a greeter at the door or you teach a Bible uh, a connection group or you know, whatever it is you do, you rock babies in the nursery, you, you teach a life group of students, you work behind a camera on a Sunday morning, you, you, whatever it is you do, I'd love to pray for you. So in both venues, if you are some type of a servant leader, a volunteer at Johnson Ferry, would you stand because I would love to pray for you on this new year. Yeah, you guys stand, and let's honor those who have been these credible servants. Yeah. And just stay, stay standing. I know you guys don't do it to be honored publicly, but we do wanna honor you. I'd love to pray for you. God, thank you so much for these incredible servants, these leaders who make an incredible difference uh, each week here at Johnson Ferry and through your kingdom, God. I pray your blessings and your favor on them. Would this be the most fruitful year of ministry for them? And God, even though they serve in ways that they can't always see what you're doing, would they do what they do with the sure knowledge and contentment that comes by knowing that they are serving the King of Kings? So Lord, bless them use them, and God, we pray for more, that more would rise up to serve at this critical hour, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You guys have a seat. So my family moved to Atlanta four years ago, hard to believe it's been four years, but we were living in Charlotte at the time, to be specific, in Matthews, which is a suburb on the southeast corner of Charlotte. I was pastoring a church in downtown Matthews, which is this quaint, beautiful, historic district. And because it was a historic district, they had these beautiful old trees, the kind of trees that are hard to find anymore, these oak trees that were towering into the air. Had to be 10 feet in diameter, massive, beautiful oak trees. One Saturday afternoon, I got a call from someone in the church who said I need to come down to the church and see something. There had been a storm it wasn't a huge storm, but there had been a storm, and the wind had blown over one of these massive oak trees. And, and it's hard to explain. I wish I had a picture of it. It's like the finger of God took this massive tree and placed it in the perfect place in a way that it hit the front yard of the church. It didn't touch the building of the church. It didn't fall on the road. It didn't destroy any of the buildings, which was a miracle in and of itself. But when I got to see the tree, it was obvious why it had fallen. It was completely hollow on the inside, which is an interesting picture. This beautiful, what appears to be strong tree 
yet it's hollow on the inside. That is a fitting picture for this series that we have called, I'm Good, Not Really. The idea that we can look a certain way from the outside, but have something totally different going on in the inside. I pastor a particular people that live in a particular place. God's called me to live here in East Cobb and to be your pastor, and I, I love living here. Our family loves living here. I love Johns Ferry. I love, I love being your pastor most of the time. I, I love a lot of things. <laughs> Some of y'all are a pain, but you know, a lot of you are awesome. And, and, I, and I love living here, and the heartbeat of this series is to draw a circle, we'll call it five miles-ish around the church, and to think about where you live. Most of you live within about five, 10, whatever miles from the church. East Cobb, Sandy Springs, uh, Woodstock, up to Kennesaw, over to Roswell. This, this whole area, East Cobb, North Atlanta. And there are some particular challenges for the people that live in this area. They may be different challenges than people who live an hour south of here or two states over. We have our own set of opportunities and challenges. I was looking at some demographic research that was done recently about, about you, and this particular company titles different groups of people with different titles. And do you know what they call you? When they looked at all the people who live around this area, they, they give you a name. You know what they call you? The power elite. The power elite. And they even have little subgroups within the power elite uh, as they look at you. Some of you they consider American royalty. Wonderful. Some of you they call, what was it, philanthropic sophisticates. I love this one. Some of you they call couples with Cabernet. That's a different uh, message, but... But I thought, what, what's it look like, the, the pastor, the power elite? What, what are some of the issues that we face? And so what we're going to do, starting today and over the next four Sundays, so uh, I guess throughout the month of August, we're going to look at four particular issues that we tend to face in our culture. You may not face these all at the same level, but we tend to face these issues and find them to be challenging. I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. We're going to talk about ambition. That's today. We're gonna talk about anxiety, that's next week. We're gonna talk about affluence, that's week three. And then week four, we're gonna talk about apathy and how that's a particular challenge for us. And as a resource, we have filmed some conversations, we're calling it Continuing the Conversation on our YouTube page. So today, when you get home, I want you to go and watch a conversation that we had about ambition today, and then we'll do the same thing each week, and the YouTube play, uh, channel is a great way to get content from Johnson Ferry. We'd love for you to be a part of that, and uh, this is where I get to say, you can smash that like button, you know, on YouTube or subscribe to it, and we would love to interact with you, but some great conversations. Today, we're going to talk about ambition in a message that I've called the shadow side of success. We live in an area that prides itself in being successful or at least appearing successful. And it shows up in all different kinds of ways. Examples like sports. I love sports, I love team sports. I love the lessons that you can learn about perseverance, life, and loss in team sports. 
But we live in a culture, in a community, where sometimes sports goes into overdrive and it begins to rule our life. And there's this pressure to, to achieve at a certain age. There's a pressure to even help your kids specialize at a sport at a certain age. And, and, and there's a downside to that, a shadow side to the success that we try to achieve with sports. Careers are another way that we try to be successful. A lot of you have been very successful in your careers, but to climb the ladder, often many corporations will require you, whether it's told to this to you or you just figure it out, you gotta compromise some things about your deepest personal values to get to the top. Or maybe you're at a company where it's this dog-eat-dog kind of thing and they're not loyal to you and you don't feel loyal to them and it's just this war that happens every single week, this pressure to be all this thing and you've almost kind of lost sense of who you are. Education is another area. So much pressure to get kids into the quote-unquote right school and if you don't, then somehow their life's not gonna be what it should be. Our, Our appearance is another way We try to reach these fitness goals. We try to spend all this time and money to look a certain way. It's just part of of the dynamic of living here. Now, what I just said may not be true of all of you, but I bet it's true of a lot of you, that we struggle with ambition at times. Now, ambition is not always bad. And I think it's very important to say that, that there are ways in which being successful is something that we should strive to do, particularly for those of us who are followers of Jesus, We should strive and be ambitious to do the things that God wants us to accomplish in our life for his will and for his glory. I think about the Apostle Paul. Paul said that he endeavored to preach the gospel where no one had preached the gospel. That is ambition. So ambition fueled by the right motive can be a wonderful, helpful thing. Ambition fueled by the wrong motive can be a very destructive thing. And there is a shadow side to success. If you see this image on the screen here, you you see a tree with beautiful fruit, the apples, and then you look underneath the soil and you see the root. When we talk about the fruit, what people often see is someone who looks successful, someone who appears to be successful, someone who has the means by which we typically associate with being successful. But often there are roots that drive that success that are not very healthy. Sometimes those roots are things like a desire to control or an unhealthy desire for power or comfort. There's a number of different roots. So today we're talking to a bunch of people who may struggle with success. Now, you're all wonderful people. Let me just say that at the outset. I remember as a kid, uh, I would drive around with my dad on Saturday nights, you know, running errands or whatever, and uh, he would love to listen to this radio show, uh, Garrison Keillor, I don't know if you've watched or listened to that one, you know, back in the day, and he had this fictional town called Lake Wobegon, and he would always talk about Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. I think that's you, beautiful people here. But there's a shadow side. And let's talk about that today. So what I want to do today, I want to talk about three different traits that can be true of us if we have an unhealthy ambition. And then I want to talk about two ways, really one way, with an expression 
of how we can find freedom. And I wanna do that by looking at a story in the Bible. If you're new to church, new to Christianity, we, we talk about the Bible and we teach from the Bible and there's so many lessons to learn from God's word. And today I wanna look in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, that's the really clean part of your Bible there in 2 Kings chapter five about a story uh, with a valiant general named Naaman. And though today we're gonna look at most of the story, verses one through 15, I want to read for you just verse one to set this up, and it's our tradition every week that when we read the text before we teach it, we stand in honor of God who gave it to us. So if you would, let's stand together. Second Kings chapter five, Let's set this story up. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man in the view of his master and eminent, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but afflicted with leprosy. Father, We're gonna read a story that you've given to us about a man who was successful in the eyes of the world, yet privately struggled. And that's true of a lot of people here today. People who will say that they're good, they're fine. But there's a lot of struggle underneath. So God, would you, in only the way that you can, expose that struggle, convict us of that struggle, encourage us in that struggle, And would we see today where true deliverance comes from? And we'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. So we hope you take notes every Sunday. That's why we have it on the listening guide, so both here in the AC and over in the sanctuary. You guys, take notes with me. I want to give you three traits. So the first word to write down is when we have an unhealthy view of success, it can make us become, here's the first word, deceived deceived, have a false view of reality. So let's look at the story. So verse one, what do we know about Naaman? He's a commander of the army of the king of Aram. That's, that's a subsection of Syria. So the Syrian army. And they had accomplished great things. It's interesting that it even says the Lord gave them victory. So he had been at the head of these battles. He was a valiant warrior. I, I don't know what Naaman looked like, but I imagine he was tall and handsome, broad shoulders, shock full of black hair. Essentially, he's Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. That's what I imagine <laughs> Naaman to be like. This, this confident general warrior, but, and this is the big but, this man with public strength had a private struggle, and it was that he had leprosy. Leprosy has largely been eradicated around the world, though it still exists in some form today. But as we understand leprosy in the time of the Bible, it, was, it started as a skin condition. It would turn your skin in certain spots white as snow. And the leprosy would eventually get into your bones and cause deterioration of, of blood circulation and other things such that many people with leprosy would eventually lose fingers, toes, even limbs, and it would essentially be a death sentence. So this man's man, valiant warrior that others looked up to had a death sentence over his head, something that he could not cure. I guarantee you when Naaman was writing the story of his life, 
he did not include this chapter. But that's where God tends to work. So the story goes on, and we meet the slave girl in verse 2 and 3. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the head of Israel, at the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if, if only my master, that's Naaman, were with the prophet, that's Elisha, who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, it's interesting, this, this girl appears, and as quick as she appears, disappears. And yet, she is a beautiful hero of the story. You see, when you would win a battle, you would win the spoils of war, which included the people that you conquered. You would often take the women and children as slaves and as servants, and the men who were not imprisoned or killed, you would also take them as servants. And so this, this little girl was taken captive by the Arameans, the very ones that Naaman commanded. And yet here we don't see bitterness on her part, resentfulness on her part. Don't you think that once she had found out that Naaman had leprosy, she's thinking, well, good, that's what he deserves. But she said, no, 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 there is a prophet and it's the source of his deliverance. This is a story where there's irony. The people you think are strong are actually weak and the people who are weak are actually strong. So Naaman, being in a desperate situation, even to listen to the counsel of a servant girl that I'm sure he normally would dismiss, heads about to find deliverance from his leprosy. Verse four and five. And Naaman went in and told his master, that's the king, he said to him, the girl who is from the land of Israel spoke such and such, she's summarizing what she said, and the king, wanting his general back, the king of Aram said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. We, we don't know how much money it was, but it was a lot. Talents of silver, 6,000 talents of gold, 10 Italian suits. That's in the Hebrew there. But what is Naaman doing? He's doing what successful people tend to do when they get in trouble. It's called leverage. Money, people, pulling strings, getting to the top. That's what he wants to do. Interesting, by the way, who did the servant girl tell him to see? The prophet. But who is he going to see? The king. He thinks that's where deliverance comes from, the man with the most power. He believes that it's like we all do. It's, it's, it's who you know, not what you know. Isn't that right? Or the golden rule. People live by that. You know the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. That's the golden rule. And Naaman thinks, if I can just find the right person, I can, with power, create a miracle. I think we live in a community with a lot of Naamans, people who are deceived. See, here's the thing about success. Success allows you to make a lot of decisions and to control a lot of things. And the great deception is that because you can control some things, you can control all things. And you start to live with this illusion 
that you are somehow exempt from hardship, exempt from tragedy, exempt from difficulty because you are a successful person and you are scared to death of losing all of that. And that's where Naaman is. And we do that to God. We project all of that onto God because in life, we often got to the top through our hard work, through our effort, and we don't wanna demean that at all. There's a lot to be said for hard work and a good ethic. But we often then project that onto God and think, as long as I'm a good person working hard, doing good things, then God will bless me. And if that's what we believe, then we are deceived. And success has a way of clouding your judgment. In fact, it's interesting that you can read studies that will tell you that it's often the most affluent cultures that live with the most anxiety. And if you travel around the world to some of the poorest places in the world, what's amazing is that oftentimes they're the happiest, most content people, and yet the people who are successful are often the ones who are the most deceived. So success can make you deceived. Here's a second trait. Success can make you fearful. Naaman now goes to the king with his letter from his own king, and verse six and seven, this is what the text tells us. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, and now this letter comes to you. Behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. But when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to keep alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. The king, upon seeing Naaman coming, has one emotion, and what is it? Fear. Either he thinks there's no way that he can be healed from leprosy, that's an incurable disease. And even though he thinks I have power, I can't do that. I'm not God, I can't heal anybody. Or he thinks this is some kind of plot such that they're gonna be attacked by this general. And isn't that interesting, the irony, that the slave girl with no power has great faith in the power of God through the prophet, and the king doesn't even mention the prophet. Fear. The king was successful, Naaman was successful. You know what's, what's just so ironic is that sometimes the most successful people are the most insecure people. Have you noticed that? Oftentimes the most successful people in the world are some of the most insecure people. And what happens is that your visibility increases with your success, but so does your vulnerability. A good example of someone who the world thinks is successful and yet they're driven by insecurity is someone who has dominated pop culture for 30, now 40 years, that she might be losing some influence, and that's Madonna. I think she's still in her wheelchair tour right now, but Madonna. And in, in a book by Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods, he gives this quote by Madonna, and I, I just thought this was very, it was very enlightening about someone who's so successful and yet was driving that. This is what she said. She said, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being 
And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. Listen to this. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. I still have to prove that I'm somebody. A lot of successful people are driven by a lot of hurt, a lot of fear, and a lot of insecurity. And sometimes that allows them to overcome great odds and do great things, but the shadow side to success is living with this fear instead of living in this deep contentment and satisfaction that comes only from a personal relationship with God. And that fear shows up in our culture in all different kinds of ways, maybe personally. I tell you, one area it often comes up is in parenting. A lot of parents parent with fear. Fear that their the children will not become all they want to become. Fear their children not become the most successful person on the planet. Fear that their children won't become this incredible athlete. Fear that their children won't have as much fun as they think they need to have. Fear that all of these things, if you don't believe me that fear exists in our culture, get on group me. Let me just tell you that. And you'll see a lot of it. A lot of times, our children become our trophies of insecurity. And we project all this stuff onto our kids, all this pressure, and we don't let them fail, we don't let them learn lessons from failure, we don't let them learn hard things in life, trying to protect them from our own insecurities. Now I do that too. I love my girls, love my kids. I want them to have a great life. But I was talking to Melissa King, and that's who are the videos with today, if you log on and uh, watch our continuing the conversation. We have a counselor who's talking about working with kids in East Cobb, teenagers, even parents. And she said this one thing I thought was so helpful. She said, it's so important as parents to parent the children we have instead of the children we wish we had. Because all that fear and insecurity can drive so much of our crazy schedules and our expectations, and it's a shadow side of success. So if the first trait is to be deceived, the second trait is fear, what's the third trait? The third trait of success is that we can become entitled. Entitled. So what is Naaman gonna do? The scene is fascinating. He, in verse eight and nine, it says that, now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why did you tear your clothes? Just have him come to me and he shall learn that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, there is a God who still heals. There is a God who still works. There is a God who's gonna show up even to this pagan general. And so Naaman goes. Naaman came with his horses, verse nine, and his chariots and stood at the doorway of Elisha's house. I love, by the way, that picture. Elisha's in this little mediocre hut, I imagine, and he looks out on the front lawn and there's you know, stallions and chariots and men and clothes and gold. What, what, a, what a contrast of the world's values and the values of the kingdom. And, and Naaman's standing here wanting to be healed. And so what does Elijah do? I mean, he's looking at one of the most popular, prominent men of his day. What is he gonna do? Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him. 
I mean, he didn't even get Elisha. He got Elisha's intern talking to him. He sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Pretty simple. Go get in the Jordan. But what does Naaman say? Verse 11. But Naaman was furious, furious and went away and he said, behold, I thought he would certainly come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand and stand and call and, and cure me of my leprosy. He wanted a show. That's what powerful people get. Give me your best stuff, Elisha. I want the whole deal. I want televangelist. I want the whole, I want preacher hair. I want the suit. I want you to wave your hands in the air. Praise the Lord. I believe it and I receive it. I name it and I claim it. I'm doing the whole deal. That's what he wants. And what he got was an intern that told him to go get in the river seven times. And so Naaman walks off in a rage. Verse 12, are Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, not better than the waters of Israel? You ever seen the River Jordan? It's not much to look at. It's like a muddy creek in many ways. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. It's a funny thing about success. Some of the most successful people can be some of the most entitled people. It's a fine line, isn't it? I, I was with uh, Crawford Loritz. Many of y'all know Pastor Crawford, and he leads a group of pastors that, I'm, that we meet somewhat regularly, and he was just downloading these life lessons into us the other day, and he, he was talking about this. He said, it's interesting that, that we are all called to be grateful and have gratitude, but gratitude is one click away from entitlement. See, you can be grateful for something, but equally expect that you're always gonna get that thing. And gratefulness can become entitlement, and entitlement can become narcissism, and narcissism can turn you into a sociopath. Grateful. Some of the most successful people are some of the most bitter, entitled people you've ever met. One example was a hero of mine growing up, Michael Jordan. Incredible athlete, the greatest basketball player, and if you've watched some of his life, it's a sad tragedy. I mean, this guy in his Hall of Fame speech was nothing but bitter and mean and angry. And I'm thinking, you, you're the greatest athlete of all time. And how petty of you to speak of people that way. In fact, one of his old teammates when he played in North Carolina, so the one time he invited Michael Jordan over to play cards with he and his mom, like a friendly little game. They're not waging money. I mean, literally just like playing cards and his mom, the guy's mom, goes to the restroom or something, and he catches Michael Jordan cheating off of her card so that he can beat her at some little game. It is so easy when you're successful to become so entitled. And Naaman goes off in a rage. Now, the story ended there. We'd have a wonderful lesson in pride, but fortunately, there's some lessons in humility, too because he changes his mind, verse 14, 13, excuse me, no, 14, or 13, I can't read, all right. <laughs> then his servants approached and spoke to him, saying, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? 
So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in accordance with the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him and said, behold now, I love this, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant now. I love that that entitlement turns into true gratitude and he goes away cleansed from leprosy. I bet there are a lot of Naamans who live in East Cobb and all over North Atlanta. In fact, I bet we have a lot of Naamans in our crowd today. Men and women who struggle with the shadow side of success. So how do you get freedom? You acknowledge that it's a problem, but how, how do you get freedom? I wanna give you two ways, really just one way, and then an expression of it, and then we'll be done. First of all, how to find freedom. Number one, these words are so important. Receive, not achieve, an identity in Christ. Receive who God wants you to be in Jesus. You don't achieve it. See, when you're successful, you think you achieve everything. But the gospel's not like that. The gospel's not something you achieve by being an amazing person. The gospel is something you receive by humbling yourself and following Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who himself was a kind of a Naaman, used to be Saul, and then God wrecked his life in the most wonderful of ways. And later in his ministry, Paul said he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. It could have been some physical ailment. It could have been some anxiety, burden he felt. We don't know. But 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 is this wonderful reminder for people who struggle with ambition. Verse 7, Paul says this, because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. I know there's a whole host of questions about that. But go to the point here, verse eight. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, here's what God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul figured out the secret to success. You know what it is? It's that God's strength is made perfect in your weakness. See, a lot of you are too strong to be weak, but God wants you to be weak to become strong. See, this is the whole hurdle of giving your life to Jesus. And I think successful people struggle in a way that those without means and, and resources don't struggle with when it comes to receiving Christ, and it's this that what God wants from you is not your amazingness. He wants your humility. 
And he wants you to lay down your life before him and surrender your all to him and stop trying to prove yourself and earn it and, and achieve it and instead receive the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. That's why he died for you on a cross that your sins could be forgiven. That's why he was raised on the third day. That's why his Holy Spirit comes in your life that you can have a new life, not one that you've earned by being awesome, but God has been awesome for you. And he wants you to receive Jesus Christ, and for that to be the banner over your life, that I am weak, I'm weak, you're weak, and yet in Christ I'm strong. I love what Tim Keller says about Jesus. Jesus is the only savior in the world who if you gain him will satisfy you, and if you fail him will forgive you. Receive, receive, not achieve this identity in Christ. And then second, this is the way it works out in just daily living and thinking. Embrace your limits as gifts. Embrace your limits as, as gifts. We, we don't tend to think about limits as gifts. In fact, if someone said, if I could have more time, I would you know, fill in the blank. You know what you do? You do more stuff. And yet God gave you 24 hours in the day like everybody else. He gives you a limited life like everybody else. And we tend to think about those limits as like a prison. Like I hate these constraints put on me because I can't do all the things I want to do. But those limits are actually a gift. You don't know everything. God does. You don't have complete and sufficient energy. You don't have knowledge of the future. You have limited gifts. There are some things you're really good at, but you're not good at everything. You have limited time. You have limited opportunities. You have a limited perspective. And those limits are actually gifts from God to you so that you would learn to depend on him. Naaman thought he had it all figured out. He's a valiant warrior, the one that everyone wanted to be like. And yet he had to surrender and say, I'm limited. So that God could come into his life. Your limits are a great gift from God. And I would encourage all of you today to ask this question. Have I truly surrendered my life to Jesus? Have I truly surrendered my life to Jesus? I think that question is equally applicable for those of you who even say you're a Christian. Because maybe you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you still live as if all the world's pressure is on your shoulder and God is saying, why don't you give that to me? Why don't you give that to me? If in both rooms right now, would you just do something for me? Just put your hands like this. You gotta put down a Bible or something, it's fine. Just put them on your lap, it's fine. Just raise them like this, all the way up like this. See, you can raise your hands in church anyways. All right, just put them back down right here. <laughs> I want you to just imagine that this is all that pressure you feel to be successful, to be amazing, to achieve, to fix, to conquer. And would you just release it? Just 
Just say, God, I'm gonna give that to you. Father, right now, I pray as people just hand that to you, that you would speak into our lives like only you can. And God, you would heal, you would forgive, you would you'd help people to surrender. And Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here today who needs to give their life to Jesus to repent and turn their life to you, would today be the day of salvation? Would today be the day where they say, God, I'm tired of doing it my way. I wanna do it your way. I wanna give my life into the hands and the power of Jesus. Oh God, I pray that you would convert people today, that you would save people today. And Lord, I pray for Christians who who live like their world is up to them instead of living in the power and surrender of you. God, they need you. They need to say, Lord, I need you and realize that you are the same God, the same God that dipped Naaman in a river and healed him is the same God that dips us in the blood of Jesus and forgives us. And that same God is working here this morning. So God, would you work, would you move as people surrender to you? Will we give our lives to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.